Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. In our second coronavirus special episode, I've asked Dr. Dina Grayson to join us. Dina is a former congressional candidate from Florida, an infectious disease expert, and medical researcher who spent nearly a decade working on treatments for Ebola. She has a wealth of knowledge and experience in managing highly dangerous viruses and in the public policy of managing these illnesses. And we are so lucky to have her with us. From the beginning, we have been working closely with our nation's best scientists and medical professionals, and we will continue to do not so. not someone who, who likes to be hyperbolic or shout these things from the roof. It's just not my nature. But we know what needs to be done. The government knows what needs to be done. Public health officials know what needs to be done. It's not happening right the now. The hardship will end. It will end soon. Unfortunately, we're really just at the beginning of this massive surge of, of coronavirus-infected patients. Well, we've asked them to accelerate whatever they're doing in terms of a vaccine. Absolutely. So this idea that a vaccine's going to be ready in three months is unfortunately beyond misleading. That is not going to happen. We're going to be uh, opening our country up for business because our country is meant to be open. As soon as we let our foot off the brake, this thing fires back up. It is highly, highly contagious. I am Dr. Dina Grayson, and I believe in healthcare for all. Sorry, not sorry. So you're a Florida resident, and we see pictures of beaches that are full there. How is your governor doing this and managing this crisis? I think that, unfortunately, Governor DeSantis has really towed the Trump party line, which was denial, 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 and too little, too late. I mean, we are, we're the, not only the third largest state here in Florida— but I think everyone knows that we have a lot of older folks that retire to Florida and older Americans, older people in general are more susceptible to this virus, more susceptible to severe illness, more susceptible to dying. And everyone, everyone saw those spring break pictures and videos. Oh, I couldn't believe it. People belly to belly, belly to belly. And then where are they going? They're going God knows where back to, you know, all over the country. And they're not symptomatic. So, you know, and you heard them saying, we don't care. We're just here to party. It's, ugh. But you can't expect a 20-year-old, 21-year-old to, like, have that kind of judgment. Where were the adults in the room? Where was the governor? Right. right. And what do you think the cost was of keeping those beaches open for so long? Alyssa, we don't know the cost yet, unfortunately. And I think that every single person that came here on spring break and was interacting with other people should be placed on immediate quarantine for 14 days. They are ticking time bombs. Exactly. I mean, you know, totally. The good news for them is they're unlikely to get severely ill or die. But what about their parents? What about their grandparents? What about their teachers? What about, you know, somebody in the store they interact with? They're ticking time bombs, little biological time bombs. And I also think, I mean, we have to be responsible and say that more and more younger people are now getting the illness and having more repercussions than in the beginning of this. And I don't know if that means that the virus itself is changing, but it does seem that more 
young people are starting to get affected. So this mentality of I'm young and invincible is really not great, not only for other people, but also for themselves. If they can't think about other people, then they have to be able to take care of themselves and protect themselves. I mean, all of those young people had to return home somewhere. And that's what's so terrifying to me. I would look at those pictures of the beach and think, how many of those people are from California or, you know, going to be going back to Studio City with my parents right next door or whatever it is? That's exactly right. And, you know, these the younger folks need to remember that actually, even though if you catch the virus, you're less likely to get seriously ill or die. It doesn't mean you're not going to get seriously ill and die, number right. one. And number two, younger people are actually the most likely to catch the virus. Right. You know this because if you look at like South Korea. 30%, and they, they screen everybody. Like, you know, you walk outside, they're like, get a test. I mean, er, like, you can't move around. I mean, they're, they're everywhere, testing, testing, testing. And we know that 30% of all of the people that tested positive in South Korea were between the ages of 20 and 29. And right. that's because those are your baristas, your bartenders, your waiters, and they're interacting with people all the time. And we call them super spreaders. They don't know they're infected. They feel fine, but they're interacting with the public. And, you know, again, prior to all this knowledge being out there, I don't fault anybody. They're just doing their job and they're doing their thing. They're in their 20s. But now that it's out there everywhere on social media, like you said, think of yourself, Alyssa. Don't even be selfless. Think of yourself. You can die. And it's so crazy to me. I mean, even in California, where people are very health conscious and very aware, people are at the beaches. They had to close down the beach parking lots because over the weekend, people were still hiking. People were still congregating in the beaches and the parks. It's so crazy to me. Before the governor took you know, the hard stance that he did in California, everybody I knew was already on elective lockdown, right? We were like, okay, we know where this is going. We'll stay home. And you look at what's going on now and people still aren't staying home. It's mind boggling to me. But I want to talk to you a little bit about the governors of the country and how you feel they're doing in addressing the coronavirus. And who do you think is standing out as far as leadership goes during this time? Well, you are very fortunate to live in the wonderful state of California where I spent, oh gosh, at least a quarter, if not a third of my life. And you have a fabulous governor, Gavin Newsom, who's doing an extremely good job. I think that he's been honest and clear and transparent. I mm -hmm. think that trying not to be overly aggressive, trying to find that right balance. I mean, we have this deadly virus that is highly contagious. No one wants to lock down the country. No one wants to lock down a community. No one wants to do that. That's like the mechanism of last resort. And Governor Newsom's done a fabulous job in sort of finding that right balance. And I think Governor Cuomo of New York has been utterly spectacular. You watch his press conferences. And, you know, I say this as a true expert, as an MD, PhD. And Alyssa, you know me, I'm an uber nerd. But I listen to his press conferences and they're spectacular. Yeah. He's very fact-based. He's not trying to freak people out, but he's, he's honest. And I think that, you know, people... And this is what I try to do as well. And you know that, Alyssa, is that I try to just tell people, here's what it is. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not trying to be sensational about it because it is a scary situation. And I find my interactions with folks, just like what Governor Cuomo is doing, knowledge is power. People feel comforted because they know it's yeah. bad, but they just want to understand the facts. And both of them have done a fabulous job. They've shown compassion. 
both That's what I was going to say. I think that they've shown great compassion and empathy. And that is what will inspire people so that once we come out of this time, we're going to be better for it. We're going to be better neighbors. We're going to be better citizens. We're going to take our position in life more seriously and what connection means and how beautiful it is to have connection and interaction and family and all of those things that I think we had begun to question, you know, not question in a philosophical way, but question because of our actions. We were very much, especially in this country, driven by money and work and status. And I feel there's a best case scenario. It's that we all come out of this remembering what it's like to really live a life of service and what that means and how we can do that and get back to that. Well, I fully agree. And a couple of thoughts on that. First of all, I think the one thing that has been striking is the utter lack of compassion from Donald Trump. Right. He gets asked a softball question. What would you tell people that are feeling scared? And he blasts the reporter. This is a softball question. We're all here to say is, my gosh, you know, we know you're scared. We're, we're here for you. Know that we're fighting every day for every life. Something. Right. Anything. Why? Right. I mean, do something. But he couldn't even do that. But more importantly, okay, let's leave Trump aside because we're not going to change that national nightmare until November. But talking about, you know, th- these relationships, Alyssa, you're so right. And I know that everybody's been using this hashtag social distancing. I got to tell you, I have a real problem with it because it sends the wrong message. We need to be more social than ever. We need our social connections, our relationships with our loved ones, with our neighbors, with our family. So we need to be physically distant, right? We don't want to be intermingling physically. But the beauty is, is that we have these wonderful tools now that we didn't have, right? So not so in the distant past, where we can FaceTime our relatives, we can Skype, we can use Zoom or whatever your favorite app is to interact and actually see people and interact. And in fact, you and I, met through Twitter. I mean, we met through social media. And so, I mean, we have these wonderful ways to connect with one another because we need each other. This is going to be hard. It already is. So I like to say to people, hashtag physical distancing. Yeah. We're going to be, if anything, more social, as you just pointed out. We need to help each other. We have to. Right now, People are terrified. They're going to lose their homes. They're going to lose their jobs. They're going to lose their cars. They're going to lose everything that they know. Yeah, their whole lives. And when their and whole when, lives are on the line, people literally their lives yeah. are on the line. When you can't put food on the table to feed your children, this is a crisis. You live in an earthquake zone. We've had horrible natural disasters, and this is an act of God kind of situation. I live in a hurricane zone here in Florida. Yeah. And we have these tragedies that happen. And I don't mean to belittle them whatsoever, but these are one-time events and then you heal from it, right? And you recover. This is not. This is like an ongoing, horrible, natural catastrophe that's going to continue. And it's not going to end next week or even next month. I mean, this is going to go on for a while. I would love to have the country opened up and uh, just raring to go by Easter. Well, I think Easter Sunday and you'll have packed churches all over our country, I think it would be a beautiful time. Based on what? No expert backed him up on the Easter call. The key thing is we've got to bail out the American people. And that's where the Democrats are so right. Yes, part of that is supporting businesses as long as they keep workers hired and pay them. 
But if we're just throwing money at a business so that some executives can get a bunch of huge bonuses, that's no, right? I think we would all agree that's just wrong. Then there's Trump. And he goes out there in his press conferences. And it is so striking to me to see the difference in what the president says and even his own medical experts say. I mean, as a doctor, that must drive you bonkers. Oh, I just sit there and watch Tony Fauci. He is literally one of the top world experts in virology. And he sits there and, you know, he has sort of the don't touch your face and he doesn't. But even he kind of just like, oh, my, he did the face palm, you know, in right. the middle of a press conference because he's just like, I can't even believe this is happening. He's trying to have the poker face, but he couldn't even do it at this point, And I've never felt this way about a president, but I feel like they need to show the press conferences on tape delay and, right. and then edit out the crap and the lies because yeah. it's dangerous. I mean, just just today, I don't know if you heard this. You know how Trump, Mr. Trump was touting the use of these anti-malarial drugs? Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, the, the data, the evidence is like, we're talking like preliminary is, and, and put evidence in quotes. I mean, this is like, maybe, it might, possibly. I would say as a scientist, there's no evidence. It's anecdotal. Anecdotal is not the antidote, okay? But here's the thing that just happened. Here in the United States, we had a man and his wife took one of these anti-malarial drugs. They were both in their 60s. The guy died and his wife is in the ICU. And I warned people. I mean, I went to Trump's Twitter too. He's like touting this. And I'm like, these medicines are associated with fatal heart arrhythmias, heart rhythms. You can drop dead, literally. And you can't just tell people because they're going to go and buy it from God knows where overseas. And they're going to start chugging this stuff down because they think, oh, I might have COVID-19 without under direct supervision of a doctor and God only knows what other medicines they have. There's a lot of interactions these things have. I mean, they're dangerous. I don't want people to think, oh, gosh, if I'm on chloroquine, is it going to kill me? No, because you're under the supervision of a qualified doctor. And Mr. Trump is not. And frankly, he's got blood on his hand. He should not be doing that. I mean, if you were Anthony Fauci, would you be doing things differently? Could you even continue to do that job? Gosh, it's me, my personality. <laughs> I think they would have fired me a long time ago. But you know, yeah, I they mean, probably would. Have. I, You're right, Dean. <laughs> I, I, I don't think I could have kept my mouth shut. And we're seeing increasingly that Dr. Fauci is speaking out, and he's speaking really to the scientific community, and he's speaking in those interviews, assuming that well, if it's not on Fox News, maybe Mr. Trump actually won't hear it, and I'll speak truth. But he should be, and I've been saying this for, as you know, for a while, that. He should be our nation's front and center spokesperson about right. what to do. I mean, he's the absolute, one of the most knowledgeable people on the entire planet. And we're just really fortunate that he happens to be an American and has served our country for many decades. And Trump should just do what normal leaders do and let the experts lead. And he looks like a, he looks like a king, but the narcissist in chief just can't help himself. Is it true that you worked as a researcher on a cure for Ebola? It is. I, I worked for nearly a decade on a treatment for Ebola. It's actually in the same type of medicine as some of these antivirals that we've been hearing about in the news recently. Remdesivir, another one's called Favipiravir, which is an approved drug for influenza in Japan. And I worked on a drug called Galadesivir. And these are drugs that all work the same way. What they do is these viruses like coronavirus and Ebola, instead of DNA, I'm going to get a little nerdy for a second, like we use DNA as our genetic code. So when you pass along your genes to your kids, you're passing that along via DNA. These certain viruses like Ebola, like influenza, 
and like coronavirus, they use RNA, which is different. And so when they want to make new viruses, they have to copy RNA to RNA. And so these drugs block that. So they block the ability of the virus to make new viruses, Mm. which is really cool. So I worked on that in Ebola. These drugs typically work against multiple different viruses that all share that same kind of mechanism, which is that RNA to RNA copying. I will say, I think those are all those drugs are in the same class and they have kind of, they're slightly different flavors. So one may work better than the other, but all of them should be tested because I mean, there's real potential there based upon how the virus works. And look, if you can block the virus from making new viruses, it's very, very effective. I'm actually cautiously optimistic that hopefully one of those will be effective. And I know at least one, if not actually at least two, are being tested as we speak today. That to me is exciting. Tell us exactly from your experience, what's happening in research labs right now? Well, in certain labs, um, believe it or not, they're being scoured for reagents, basically chemicals, to perform the COVID-19 tests. So Mr. Trump so bungled this. I screened for testing in January. And of course, nothing to see here, nothing to see here, even into March. Mr. Trump was like, nothing to see here. Couple cases, it's going to be zero. We were way behind the eight ball. And remember, we're not the only country that's having an outbreak. This is a global pandemic. And so these reagents are like, it's kind of like toilet paper. You can't find any. Well, guess what? These chemicals to do the tests, you have to basically purify the RNA. Okay. So you need specific chemicals to do that. They're on short order worldwide. Well, we were kind of like last in line to get them. So labs have been told, hey, if you have any of these kits, can you please give them to us because we need the chemicals? So that's just just a little weird aside that you wouldn't hear about. Like one of my friends told me about this, like, hey, Dita, check this email out. I was like, oh my God, wow. I've never seen such a thing. But as far as the other areas that are going on, there's a couple of areas. I mentioned the RNA blocking drugs. Okay. Those are being investigated. Now, the anti-malarial drugs are being studied. But you have to study these under controlled situations so you can figure out if they actually work. So that's being done. Another area that's very exciting, I think, for the near term as well, is to identify people who've already had the virus and cleared it. And they have antibodies, which make them immune. And so identifying those people, and then you have the opportunity to purify their antibodies, which can then be used to treat really sick people. Now, you know, you're limited in the supply, you know, we're not going to stuff these people dry, but you can certainly get enough of the antibody. And this was done during Ebola, by the way, sort of a quick and dirty, if you will, way to get a medicine that's effective, which is basically purifying safely the antibodies from patients who are now recovered, fully recovered from the virus. And then you can give those antibodies to somebody who's really, really sick. And that helps basically sort of artificially is giving them immunity, if you will, because you're basically infusing immunity into them by giving them the antibodies. Yeah, Dr. Peter Hotez is trying to work actively to get our healthcare workers that therapeutic treatment so that they're at least somewhat protected while there's a shortage in masks and gowns, which is just disgusting. Well, and why is that? That is because Mr. Trump stuck his head in the ground refused to acknowledge there was a global crisis and was more worried about the stock market and his re-election chances than protecting American lives. And again, where do we get most of this equipment? We get it from China. Do you think China wants to give us a bunch of equipment when they have their own problem? No. And and by the way, everyone in the world is trying to buy this equipment. 
And he still hasn't even activated. There's an ability to basically, you know, force the manufacturers to make this stuff. He hasn't activated it. He's talked about it, but he hasn't actually done it. And that's crazy. I have friends, and I speak with my physician friends quite often, and you can imagine, especially recently. And I was speaking, let me give you a very stark example, Alyssa, that I have to say I was stunned. I was speaking with a friend of mine who is a cancer doctor at a very prestigious place. Your listeners would know, I'm not going to name names, very prestigious cancer center in this country. And she was wearing an N95 mask to see her patients because she wanted to protect herself because she has an elderly mom at home, but also she wanted to protect her patients. She's relatively young. She could be an asymptomatic carrier. These are cancer patients. So they're immunocompromised by definition because they're under treatment. She was admonished by her administration at her cancer center, told you can't wear a mask because I said, what? This is crazy. Is that because they're in short supply? She said, no, I bought my own mask. It's because they told me I was being hysterical. Now, I was stunned. I mean, you know, I just died. I mean, this is a true story. I just spoke with her a few days ago. And she said, you know, I'm going to probably have to quit because I'm not going to put my mother's life at risk and I'm not putting my patient's life at risk. I have a doctor friend that quit the hospital that he was working at because he has a mom who's sick. But the other thing is that even to me, at least it's criminal, but different criminal, right? I've got a good friend who's an anesthesiologist. So these are the people that put the breathing tubes in, right? Like that's like one of the most dangerous jobs you could have with a respiratory virus. They don't have masks. They don't have face shields. She went on the internet herself and bought stuff for herself. It's unbelievable. What weaknesses has the pandemic exposed in our healthcare system other than, you know, obviously a shortage of life-saving supplies for our healthcare workers? Well, you know, as we, we started off your wonderful podcast, Alyssa, I told you my mission statement, which is healthcare for all. And we are seeing the stark differences, right? And as I kept reminding people, those that don't share our views, like you and I do, of universal healthcare in this country, that... When you're in the middle of a global pandemic with a very deadly, highly contagious virus, our collective health is only as good as the least healthy person among us. Right. Because if one person has the virus, we're all at risk. And that is very, very clear. And for a long time, we've heard the Trump administration, oh, well, we're going to make co-pays for COVID-19 testing. Well, in Florida, we didn't expand Medicaid. So we have close to 20% of our population in a state that's close to 20 million people. Okay. You can do that math pretty fast. Wow. 4 million people without insurance, right, that have no insurance. And guess what? They're working in the hotels and restaurants around Disney World where all these visitors are coming. They're not insured. And by the way, they have no paid sick leave. None. No paid sick leave. So if you are making an hourly wage, you know, living paycheck to paycheck, working hard, putting food on the table for your family. You have zero incentive to go get a test because if you're younger, you don't even feel sick. If you test positive, you got to be quarantined for two weeks. And by the way, you, you have to probably get a huge bill for the test, several thousand dollars. 
Now that's free, thank goodness, thanks to the Democrats. And also, you would have had to have no paid sick leave. That's, that's a bankruptcy issue. It's ridiculous. Now, at least the bill did pass. This is the one that Mitch McConnell said, told the Republicans to gag when they passed it. So at least we have sort of a Band-Aid situation. But I worry for folks because we don't have fair unemployment coverage for folks. Every state does it differently. Here in Florida, it's no surprise. It's pretty sucky. So people are hurt. And it just shows the vast disparities. Secondly, what about the kids who are out of school? No one's talking about this. Now, our kids luckily go to a school system where they're in public school uh, in the Orlando area, and they have school computers. That's all great. And luckily, we're able to afford internet at our house. What about the kids who can't afford internet? What do you do? Like, basically, now they can't go to school. And what about parents that have, like, I can work from home, luckily. It's hard, but I can do it. But there are a lot of folks, they can't work from home. So we're seeing these huge disparities in really economic disparities where those on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale are getting screwed much more than rich people. Again, they always get screwed. Yeah. I mean, this really, something like this really shows the importance of having safety nets for sure. I can't get over the lack of like a coordinated national response. It just feels like everybody's going state by state. And what that means is, is that everyone's competing for the medical equipment, right, that we're trying to get in because we're lacking. My question to you, I guess, is did we used to have this managed better? Has this Yes, yes. So tell me what happened. What, well, so first of all, you hit the nail on the head about this competition. So Governor Cuomo highlighted this. He said, you know, I'm competing against California and some other states, and we're in a bidding war. And you got the manufacturers kicking back, going, well, you know, California's offering me four bucks. What are you going to give me, Cuomo? Right. That's crazy talk. Well, I can give you a specific example. When President Obama was in office, uh, better days, okay, much better days. Hopefully we'll get there soon. When we had the Ebola crisis, he appointed an Ebola czar, not somebody like a science denier like Pence, who was a spin doctor in chief. Notice that Pence barely speaks anymore. He was just there to toe the party line and downplay everything. I mean, he's a science denier. He's not going to, you know, this is not what he does. So when we had a president that actually cared about science, he put together a top-notch team, and they coordinated this response to make sure that the federal level, this is a federal issue, this is not a state issue, this is a federal issue, that you coordinate supplies. We have a national shortage. We have something called a strategic national stockpile, where we actually literally stockpile stuff for exactly the situation for global pandemics. We have medicines, we have ventilators, we have masks and gowns and gloves, we have that kind of stuff. And you put somebody in charge early, We know the intelligence community was telling Trump about this starting in late January. And that was pretty much every briefing. You know, his presidential daily briefing was, hello, pandemic coming. And the bottom line is, Alyssa, long-winded answer, but the bottom line is total failure of leadership is why we don't have this coordinated response. I mean, the fact that he put Pence in charge of all of this, a science denier, There is a theory going around that he did that so that when he gets blamed for this being a botched process, that he can blame Pence and then bring another VP in. 
I don't think so, Alyssa, because I think that what he did is he approached this because remember who was in charge behind the scenes was the usual Jared Kushner. So Jared Kushner's whole approach was this is a PR crisis, not a you got the P right, but it's a pH crisis, a public health crisis. So they were just trying to spin their way out of it. And I kept saying, dude, you cannot spin your way out of death. You can't. And so I think what happened is they wanted to put somebody in who towed the party line of "Ah, everything's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Nothing to see here. Pandemics are bad for politics. You know, I get it. But again, you can't spend death. And the only person other than Trump, who has obviously a vested interest in huge vested interest in, you know, the November election is Pence. So I actually think it was more that. But God, you know, don't ask me to read Trump's mind, Alyssa. I mean, I'm probably the last person like you on the planet to know what what the heck is in that guy's mind. I mean, if anything. I think that he is an asshole. I mean, this whole thing is just unfathomable to me that he knew about this in January and sat on this information so that his economy would not crash. And it's disgusting and it's hurtful. And the fact that human lives are going to die. By the way, a lot of people are going to die because of, of his, his greed and his inability to manage this pandemic in a way that did the least amount of damage as possible. You're I a thousand mean, percent right. It, it's scary. No one reached out to me and said, uh, as a senior citizen, uh, are you willing to take a chance on your survival in exchange for keeping the America that all America loves for your children and grandchildren? And if that's the exchange, I'm all in. Of all the things that he has done, this is just like, if people aren't angry about this, then there is something wrong. They need to check their pulses. But again, I'm just going to take this moment as an opportunity to remind everyone to check their voter registration and make sure that they are still registered to vote during the primary. I requested an absentee ballot and they told me I was not registered. So there's our reminder I think one of the most terrifying things to me about this, there are so many, but one of the most terrifying things has been this conversation about multiple waves of the disease, that we do our social distancing and our lockdowns for a period of weeks or months, only then to have the disease come back when we get back out into the world. How long do you think we're going to be living this way? Uh, I knew you were going to ask me that question. And it's not because I can't answer it. The truth isn't pretty. Unfortunately, this is not a couple week thing. I know Mr. Trump has been out there saying, you know, the end of that 15 day stay home order is going to be next week. And we're just, we got to open back up. But let me paint it to you this way. So everyone can really get where we're at. This virus on average with one person who's infected infects three other people. Okay. Now seasonal influenza, one person infects on average, maybe 1.3 people. Now that difference probably doesn't sound like a lot, right? Right. 1.3 to three. eh, What's the big deal? Well, let me put it to you this way. If you have one person who's infected with flu, and they infect and, you know, not that they can infect 1.3 people, but on average, right? And you do 10 rounds of that. Then those people infect 1.3 people and so on and so on. And do that 10 times. That first infection leads to 14 people infected. 
that's pretty bad, right? Now, with this coronavirus, one person infects three people who then each of them infect three more people who then each infect three more people. Do that 10 times, one person turns into 59,000 infections. Think about that. Basically, what that means is as soon as we let our foot off the brake, this thing fires back up. It is highly, highly contagious. That doesn't mean we're in lockdown forever. So I don't want people to go, oh my God. No, this is not a life sentence. What it means is for now, we have to be very physically distant. That's our only defense. Why? Because Trump bungled totally rolling out testing. We still don't have enough testing. We're nowhere close to it. But there's light. So just a couple of days ago, there was a rapid test that was approved, 45 minutes to get the turnaround time. Bam. It's like super fast. We need that everywhere. You talk about where you want to make an investment, like you want to go out, you got to be tested. Okay. Also, we need a test to know who's already had it, who has antibodies. So they're immune because then they can go out everywhere. They're fine. We need almost like a little chip card you can carry around. So like you can scan it, like, yep, I'm safe. See, I'm good. Or an armband or some kind of way to identify people that are not able to get infected. They can then deliver food to our elderly relatives because they're not going to infect them and kill them. So we don't have that in place. I mean, if I were coronavirus czarina, I would be putting the highest emphasis there in addition to the treatments and vaccines and the masks and gowns. I mean, these are the things we need because I want to open up society. But right now we're in a situation where it's basically have choices between really, really, really bad and utterly, utterly awful. And the utterly awful scenario is like 4 million people dying from this virus in a relatively short period of time. Like that's the size of the city of Los Angeles. And that's why, by the way, Trump got those estimates. And that's all of a sudden why he went, oh, maybe, yeah. Okay, maybe it's not right. Uh, Oops. So so I think basically for now, for the next foreseeable, oh, at least I would say four to six weeks, easily, probably longer. Remember that we're also in the middle still of flu season. And this virus, and you talked about the waves, Alyssa. Now, I, do I know this for a fact? No, but very likely this coronaviruses in general have a seasonality, just like flu does. We have flu season in the winter. It goes away in the summer. Coronaviruses in general do the exact same pattern with they kind of basically holding hands with the flu, doing it at the same time. And we have evidence that this coronavirus behaves that way because right now in the Southern hemisphere, it's just starting to exit, you know, in summer going into fall. And notice that we haven't seen these huge outbreaks in places like Africa and South America. And no one would argue that Africa has better healthcare infrastructure than Europe or the United States. And so what I and a lot of other experts believe is that we're going to see as our summer approaches, Mm. not that there's going to be no infections, but just think about like wildfire season, right? You know, flu season is like wildfire season for this virus. It spreads like crazy. When it's not flu season, it doesn't mean you aren't going to get fires. It's just that they're less likely to spread and become massive. Whereas the Southern hemisphere is going to be lit and it's going to be the hot zone. And then come October, November, fall, when our flu season starts again, this thing, that virus is going to boomerang back north. And actually, this second wave, it's going to be much worse. And the Spanish flu pandemic, same thing happened. First wave started in March, ding, ding, ding. It was bad, but sort of like little shot across the bow. But that second wave was where 80% of Americans who died, they died in that second wave. Because you have a full six months of flu season, of wildfire season, where that virus can go hog wild and spread like crazy. And unfortunately, 
I think that's the scenario here. But if we have testing everywhere, everywhere, I mean, it has to be like free, easy. It's got to be like, you know, how we used to have pay phones everywhere. It's got to be like that. It's got to be like everywhere you go. If you want to go into a store, it's like, nope, stop here. You're going to go to the coronavirus clinic and we're going to test you. If you test positive, we're not going to send you home because if you go home, you're going to infect your whole family. We're going to send you to coronavirus camp. we got a bunch of empty hotels. Why don't we staff them? Those hotels, people need jobs. Let's put people to work. We have work to get done. Let's staff those hotels with people who are immune to the virus. They've cleared it. You go stay at coronavirus camp for two weeks. You get over it. If you get sick, you go to the hospital. But otherwise, you know, you hang out, you stream some Netflix, you get paid sick leave, and then you're clear. You're good to go. You're immune. If we really want to open up society, these are the kinds of things we need to do. Otherwise, the only option we have is wait for that vaccine, which is over a year away. And I don't think anyone wants to wait that long. So I think there's things that we can do. Take that South Korea model. And we know that works in the Western world because in Italy, in the hot zone, Alyssa, there's a little town of 3,000 people, and they instituted really aggressive testing, including of young asymptomatic people. The baristas we talked about, the 20 to 30-year-olds, they have zero transmission, Alyssa. And they're literally surrounded by flames of coronavirus. This little town of 3,000, no transmission. Because they test and retest and retest. If you test positive, you're quarantined. What you're explaining would really just cause fundamental shifts in the way society works. Do you think people are ready for that? Do you think that the government is preparing now for that second wave to potentially hit us? It's two two different questions. Yeah, so they are. So No, I think on the first one, but I think if we had good leadership that could explain to the American people, here's our options, okay? We do nothing, and like we're going to have a massive amount of death, and we're going to overwhelm the hospitals. Because when you overwhelm the hospitals, your death rate, your case fatality rate skyrockets. Why? You've got 50 people for one ventilator. Right. You, so you just, even with the best medical care, you have to make choices. You have to ration healthcare. So I think if people could explain that to the American people, and if you enforced it and said, look, you want to leave your house, that's fine, but you got to have a coronavirus card and you got to be clear. And if you're not, forget it. Now, the second question you asked, hey, is the government prepared for this? Absolutely not. I hope I'm right about the seasonality of this virus. I think it's very likely. My concern is, though, is that Mr. Trump is going to spin this and go, of course, it's because of my great efforts that the virus has died down. We're not right. just seasonality. And then he lets his foot off the brake. And then we come in October, November. And again, it takes time. It's not like people start dropping dead, as we saw. Deaths trail the infections because it takes time, the incubation period, plus people go in the hospital for two or three weeks. And it takes time for that, you know, I mentioned 10 rounds of infection. You go from one to 59,000 cases. Okay, so that takes some time. So it's not like all of a sudden in October, it's going to be, we're lit. But that's where the virus is going to start spreading like wildfire again, very likely. So that's my fear. And I don't think anybody has faith in Mr. Trump that he will have us prepared because he's shown us zero in the last three plus years that he has any ability to lead this country. Yeah, all he really does is divide the country. He's really good. That's the only thing he's been super successful at. And to that point, he obviously has been making a big deal of calling this the China virus, although the way he says China drives me crazy. It's like China. But how does that differ from normal disease naming conventions? There are viruses that are named after the place from which they came, like Ebola. So Ebola is named after a river in Africa where the virus was sort of 
thought to have first spread from and the cases came from. But we don't call it the African virus. We call it Ebola virus. And the scientists name the virus. The scientists have named this SARS coronavirus too. That's the name. That's the technical name. I just call it the coronavirus because everybody knows it. COVID-19 is the disease it calls it's caused by, and you know, look, Dr. Fauci said it well, and he was asked, do you call this the China virus, the Chinese virus? And he just kind of gave this look like, say what? <laughs> no, like, no, of course not. It's his usual dog whistle to his basest of base. <sighs> it's a lot. It's a lot. And as I'm trying to create this new normal for my children and trying to keep my fear in check and my mental health in check, do you have hope? I do have hope. I think that one of the things that I have seen, you said it well, like the one thing that Trump is good at is dividing our country. I think this is the ultimate uniter. I mean, this virus doesn't care if you're black or white, poor, rich, Republican, Democrat, independent, whatever. It infects and it can kill you. And I think that this is an opportunity and I'm already seeing it for us to grow together. And, you know, we're not having to spend time commuting. Right. For a lot of folks, that's an hour or more a day that they're no longer in their car being frustrated. Right. And I think that we need to understand is that this virus threatens us all. It's not a Republican issue. It's not a Democratic issue. It's not even an American issue. It's a human issue. So I have hope there. And I also have hope and faith. We, we live in a country that we are the best in the world at biomedical research. We are. I mean, there's other countries who are great, but we are far and away the best. And I think our innovators, I think we have, and we have great innovators, not just in biotech. There are so many interesting solutions, like, for example, the smart thermometer company. I don't know if you heard about this. This is cool. So these smart thermometers have these chips in them. And so they basically, this company, they can track who has a fever and when. It's kind of scary. I wouldn't have one in my house. But anyway, so they looked at all the data and they said, we're going to look at what's kind of the incidence. How many fevers are we seeing right now in America? compared to prior years at this same time, knowing that we're in flu season. So we tend to see more fevers. And they created a heat map to say, here's where we're seeing an unusually large amount of fevers compared to prior years in March at this time. No surprise, Seattle lights up. No surprise, New York lights up. See a little bit of Southern California. But by far, the place that was most lit, Florida, because we're not testing. You don't test, you don't see it. If you don't look for something, you don't see it. So there's ways, for example, of leveraging technology like that to find out where's an early hotspot. Maybe we can identify that. Let's go in and test and then be more regional in our lockdowns and say, look, if you're living in Topeka and you're not having any infections because we're doing all the screening, we got all this great chip technology we can use now that people can update their little coronavirus card every day or if they're out and about working. We have technologies that can do that so we can actually make this easier for people so they can we can get back to a normal life. That's where it gives me hope because I know we've got a lot of smart people and this is an all hands on deck kind of thing. You know, this is like bigger than going to the moon. Like this is our own survival and that gives me hope. Well, Dina, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Come back again, maybe in a few weeks where you can give us an update on where we are. Certainly it is conceivable that if we don't do that, you could get as bad as Italy. But I don't think we're going there if we do the kinds of things that we are publicly saying we need to do. We need to be very serious about for a while, life is not going to be the way it used to be in the United States. We have to just accept that if we want to do what's best for the American public.
As we leave you today, I want to share words from Dr. Anthony Fauci from an interview with the journal Science. This is our nation's top infectious disease doctor. This is the fight he has to have. Question. You stood nearby while President Trump was in the Rose Garden shaking hands with people. You're a doctor. You must have had a reaction like, Sir, please don't do that. Answer. When you're dealing with the White House, sometimes you have to say things one, two, three, four times, and then it happens. So I'm going to keep pushing. Question. You're standing there saying nobody should gather with more than 10 people, and there are almost 10 people with you on the stage, and there are certainly more than 10 journalists there asking questions. Answer. I know that. I'm trying my best. I cannot do the impossible. Question. Most everyone thinks that you're doing a remarkable job, but you're standing there as the representative of truth and facts, and things are being said that aren't true and aren't factual. Answer. I can't jump in front of the microphone and push him down, okay? He said it. Let's try and get it corrected for the next time. Ugh. This is what the top infectious disease doctor in America has to deal with during one of our most deadly medical crises that our nation has ever had to face in its history. Elections have consequences. Please stay safe, stay inside. Use this downtime to check your voter registration. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word.